Chapter 8, Part 2 of Aircraft and Submarines by Willis J. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Incidents of the War in the Air, Part 2. Bombs are usually dropped from a low altitude at night in order to be sure of getting the target. If, during the performance, any local searchlights are turned on, Archie gets busy and a merry game of hide-and-seek in and out of the beams takes place. If the airplane is very low, and bombs are sometimes dropped from a height of only a few hundred feet, it is highly probable that the bursting shells do more damage than the airplane's bombs, and it is almost impossible to wing an airplane by night. Over the lines, the pilot probably meets more searchlights, dodges them, and gradually descends. Below him, he sees the aerodromes of the surrounding squadrons lighted up for landing purposes. Should he be in doubt as to which is his own, he fires a certain combination of signal lights and is answered from below. He then lands, hands his machine over to the mechanics, and turns in. So much for night bombing. By day, it is different. Though at night it is the billets which usually form the target, by day bombing is carried out for the purpose of damaging specific objects, railroads, dumps of stores and ammunition, and enemy aerodromes are the favorite targets. The raiding machines fly in formation and are surrounded by other machines used solely for protective purposes. Generally, a raid is carried out by machines from two squadrons, the bomb carriers belonging to a corps wing and the escorting machines to an army wing. All the machines meet at a prearranged rendezvous well on our side of the line at a certain time and a given altitude. There they maneuver into their correct formation. A flight commander leads the raid and his machine is distinguished by streamers tied to it. Once over the target, the fighters scatter and patrol the neighborhood while the bombers discharge their missiles on the objective. Usually, unless anti-aircraft fire is very heavy, they descend a few thousand feet to make sure of the target, and when their work is completed, rise again to the level of the escort. Results can usually be fairly judged by day. An ammunition dump quickly shows if it is hit, and stores soon burst into flame. Railway stations or junctions show clearly damage to buildings or overturned trucks, but the damage to the track itself is hard to estimate. Aerodromes may be bombed for the purpose of destroying enemy machines in their hangars or merely in order to spoil the landing by blowing holes all over the place. It is with great delight that a pilot remarks in his report that a hostile machine, surrounded by mechanics, was about to ascend, but that instead he had descended to within a few hundred feet and obtained a direct hit, with the result that the enemy machine, including the surrounding men, seemed to be severely damaged. One officer on a bomb raid saw his chance in this way descended to 400 feet under intense rifle fire, successfully bombed the enemy machine which was just emerging from its hangar and then tried to make off. Unfortunately, at this moment, his engine petered out, possibly on account of the enemy's fire, and he had to descend. By skillful planning, he managed to descend about three-quarters of a mile away in full view of the enemy. Instead of giving up the ghost and at once firing his machine, this officer jumped out and utterly unperturbed by the German fire or by the Huns making across country to take him prisoner, commenced to inspect the engine. 
Luckily, he found the cause of the trouble at once, put it right, it was only a trifling mishap, adjusted the controls, and swung the propeller. The engine started, he jumped in, with the nearest hun only a hundred yards off, and, opening the throttle, raced over the ground and into the air pursued by a futile fusillade of bullets. His engine held out, and he safely regained his aerodrome, after having been reported missing by his comrades. For this escapade, he received the Military Cross, a well-earned reward. When all the bombs had been dropped and the formation resumed, the machines head for home. It is on the homeward journey that events may be expected, for time enough has elapsed for the Hun to detail a squadron to intercept our returning machines and pick off any stragglers that may fall behind. It is a favorite Bosch maneuver to detail some of his slow machines to entice our fighters away from the main body, and when this has been accomplished, to attack the remainder with Fokkers, which dive from aloft onto the bombing machines. This trick is now well known, and the fighters rarely leave their charges until the latter are in comparative safety. Sometimes a Hun of more sporting character than his brothers will wait alone for the returning convoy, hiding himself thousands of feet up in the clouds until he sees his moment. Then, singling out a machine, he will dive at it, pouring out a stream of bullets as he falls. Sometimes he achieves his object, and a British machine falls to earth. But whatever the result, the Hun does not alter his tactics. He dives clean through the whole block of machines, down many thousands of feet, only flattening out when close to the ground. The whole affair is so swift, just one lightning dive, that long before a fighter can reach the Hun, the latter is away thousands of feet below and heading for home and safety. Every Falker pilot knows that once his surprise dive is over, he has no chance against another machine. The build of the Falker only allows this one method of attack, and he does not stop to argue about it. His offensive dive becomes a defensive one. That is the sole difference. Sometimes a large squadron of German machines, composed of various types of airplanes, intercepts a returning formation. If it attacks, a grand aerial battle ensues. The British fighting machines spread out in a screen to allow the bombing machines a chance to escape and then attack the Huns as they arrive. In one place, one British airplane will be defending itself from two or three German machines. Close by, two or three of our buses will be occupied in sending a Hun to his death. Elsewhere, more equal combats rage, and the whole sky becomes an aerial battlefield, where machines perform marvelous evolutions, putting the best trick flying of pre-war days very much in the shade. No sooner has a pilot accounted for his foe by killing him, forcing him to descend, or making him think discretion the better part of valor, than he turns to the help of a hard-pressed brother, surprising the enemy by an attack from the rear, or otherwise creating a diversion. A single shot in the petrol tank proves fatal. Loss of pressure ensues, the engine fails, and the pilot is forced to descend. He can usually land safely, but should he be in enemy territory, he must fire his machine and prepare for a holiday in Germany. Should he be fortunate enough to plane over our lines, little damage is done, the tank can be repaired and the machine made serviceable again. But for the time being, he is out of the fight. Sometimes the escaping petrol may ignite and the pilot and observer perish in the flames. The most terrible fate of all.
The aerial battle ends in one of two ways. One side is outmaneuvered, outnumbered, and has lost several machines and flies to safety, or, the more usual ending, both sides exhaust their ammunition, only a limited quantity per force being carried, and the fight is of necessity broken off. Meanwhile, the bombing machines have probably crossed the line in safety, and their duty is finished. Should they be attacked by a stray machine, they are armed and quite capable of guarding themselves against any attack except one in force. During these bomb raids, photographs of the target are frequently obtained, or should the staff require any district crossed on the journey and taken, they are generally secured by bombing machines. It is wonderful what minute details may be seen in a photograph taken at a height of from eight to 12,000 feet and our prints, which are far superior to those taken by the Hun, have revealed many useful points which would otherwise have remained unknown. When it is remembered that a single machine crossing the line is heavily shelled, it may be conceived what an immense concentration of Archies is made on the raiders on their return. It is remarkable what feeble results are obtained, considering the intensity of the bombardment, but rarely is a machine brought down though casualties naturally occur occasionally. Lieutenant C., in company with other machines, had successfully bombed his target and had meanwhile been heavily shelled, with the result that his engine was not giving its full number of revolutions, and he lagged a little behind the rest of the formation. No hostile aircraft appeared, and all went well until he was about to cross the lines, when a terrific bombardment was opened on him. He dodged and turned to the best of his ability, but a well-aimed shell burst just above him, and a piece of the archie hit him on the head, not seriously wounding him, but knocking him unconscious. The machine, deprived of the guiding hand, immediately got into a dive and commenced a rapid descent from 10,000 feet, carrying the unconscious pilot with it to be dashed to pieces on the ground. Whether the rush of air, the sudden increase of pressure, or the passing off of the effect of the blow caused the disabled man to come to his senses is not known, but when the machine was only a few hundred feet from the ground, Lieutenant C. recovered his senses sufficiently to realize his position, and managed to pull the machine up and make a landing. He then lapsed into unconsciousness again. Had he remained in his state of collapse half a minute longer, he would inevitably have been killed. Another curious case of wounding was that of Lieutenant H., who was also returning from a bomb raid. When passing through the heavily shelled zone, his machine was hit by a shell, which passed through the floor by the pilot's seat and out at the top without exploding. Lieutenant H. thought it must have been very close to his leg, but he was so fully occupied with maneuvering to dodge other shells that he had no time to think of it. He crossed the line and began to plane down when he was aware of a feeling of faintness, but pulling himself together, he landed his machine, taxied up to the sheds, and attempted to get out. It was only then that he realized that his leg was shot almost completely off above the knee. The lower part was merely hanging by a piece of skin. Incredibly, as it may seem, the shell which hit his machine also tore through the leg, luckily without exploding. Unknown to Lieutenant H., probably the force of the blow and excitement of the moment caused it to pass unnoticed, and the torn nature of the wound helped to close the arteries and prevent his bleeding to death. He recovered, and though no longer flying, is still engaged in doing his duty for the duration of the war. 
The courage and dash of the American aviators, serving with the French Army, led the Allies to expect great things of our flying corps, which should be organized immediately after our declaration of war. About the time of that declaration, Major L.W.B. Reese of the British Flying Corps came to the United States for the purpose of giving to our authorities the benefit of British experience in raising and equipping aerial fleets and in the development of the most efficient tactics. Major Reese, in an official statement, set forth many facts of general interest concerning the various flying services of the belligerent armies. The British, he said, fly on three levels with three different kinds of machines. Nearest the ground, about 6,000 feet up, are the artillery directors who hover about cutting big figure eights above the enemy trenches and flash back directions by wireless to the British artillerists. These observers are, of course, exposed to attack from anti-aircraft guns, the effective range of which had, by the middle of war, become as great as 10,000 feet. Yet, as has already been noted, the amount of execution done by these weapons was surprisingly small. The observers are protected from attack from above, first by the heavy fighting planes, flying at 10,000 feet, carrying two men to the plane and able to keep the air for four hours at a time at a speed of 110 miles an hour. They are supposed to use every possible vigilance to keep the enemy fighters away from the slower and busy observing machines. In this, they are seconded by the lighter one-man fighting machines, which cruise about at a height of 15,000 feet at a speed of 130 miles an hour and able to make a straight upward dash at the rate of 10,000 feet in 10 minutes. The aviators of these latter machines came to describe their task as sailing work, suggesting that they operated at the very top of the world's great room. They are able to keep the air only about two hours at a time. Americans, perhaps, gave exaggerated importance to the work of the Lafayette Escadrille, which was manned wholly by American boys, and which, while in service from the very beginning of the war, was the first section of the French army permitted to display the flag of the United States in battle after our declaration of war. It was made up, in the main, of young Americans of good family and independent means, most of them being college students who had laid down their books for the more exciting life of an airman. They paid heavily in the toll of death for their adventure and for the conviction which led them to take the side of democracy and right in the struggle against autocracy and barbarism months, even years, before their nation finally determined to join with them. In the first two and a half years of the war, seven of the aviators in this comparatively small body lost their lives. Harvard College was particularly well represented in the American Flying Corps, although this is a proper and pertinent place to say that the sympathy shown for the Allied cause by the young collegians of the United States was a magnificent evidence of the lofty righteousness of their convictions and the spirit of democracy with which they looked out upon the world. When the leash was taken off by the declaration of war by the United States, the college boys flocked to training camps and enlistment headquarters in a way that bade fair to leave those institutions of learning without students for some years to come. But to hark back to Harvard, it had in the Lafayette Escadrille five men in 1916. Three of these, Kiffin Rockwell, Norman Prince, and Victor Chapman, were killed in that year. A letter published to Harvard volunteers in Europe tells of the way these young gladiators started the day's work. Rockwell called me up at three, 
Fine day, fine day, get up. We hung around at Billy's, Lieutenant Thaw, and took chocolate made by his ordinance. Hall and the lieutenant were guards on the field. But Thaw, Rockwell, and I thought we would take a tour chez la Boche, being the first time the Méchanots were not there and the machine gun rolls not ready. However, it looked misty in the Vosges, so we were not hurried. Rendezvous over the field at a thousand meters, shouted Kiffin. I nodded, for the motor was turning, and we sped over the field and up. In my little cockpit, from which my shoulders just protrude, I have several diversions besides flying. The compass, of course, and the map I keep tucked in a tiny closet over the reservoir before my knees, a small clock, and one altimeter. But most important is the contour, showing revolutions of the motor which one is constantly regarding as he moves the manettes of gasoline and gas back and forth. To husband one's fuel and tease the motor to round eleven takes attention, for the carburetor changes with the weather and the altitude. The earth seemed hidden under a fine web such as the Lady of Chalon wove, soft purple in the west changing to shimmering white in the east. Under me, on the left, the Vosges, like rounded sand dunes, cushioned up with velvety light and dark masses, really forests. But to the south, standing firmly above the purple cloth like icebergs, shone the Alps. My, they look steep and jagged. The sharp blue shadows on their western slopes emphasize the effect. One mighty group standing aloof to the west, Mont Blanc, perhaps, ah, there are quantities of warm eaten fields my friends the trenches and that town with the canal going through it must be m right beside the capote of my engine showing through the white cloth a silver snake the rhine what not a quarter to six and i left the field at five thirty two hundred meters let's go north and have a look at the map while thus engaged, a black puff of smoke appeared behind my tail, and I had the impression of hearing a piece of iron hiss by. Must have got my range first shot, I surmised, and, making a steep bank, peaked heavily. There I have lost them now. The whole art of avoiding shells is to pay no attention till they get your range and then dodge away, change altitude, and generally avoid going in a straight line. In point of fact, I could see bunches of exploding shells up over my right shoulder, not a kilometer off. They continued to shell that section for some time, the little balls of smoke thinning out and merging as they crossed the lines. In the earlier days of the war, when the American aviators were still few, their deeds were widely recounted in their home country, and their deaths were deplored as though a personal loss to many of their countrymen. Later, they went faster and were lost in the daily reports. Among those who had early fixed his personality in the minds of those who followed the fortunes of the little band of Americans flying in France was Kiffin Rockwell, mentioned in an earlier paragraph, and one of the first to join the American escadrille. Rockwell was in the war from sincere conviction of the righteousness of the Allies' cause. I pay my part for Lafayette and Rochambeau, he said proudly, when asked what he was doing in a French uniform flying for France. And pay he did, though not before making the Germans pay heavily for their part. Once, flying alone over Thann, he came upon a German scout. Without hesitation, the battle was on. Rockwell's machine was the higher, had the better position. 
as aerial tactics demanded he dived for the foe, opening fire as soon as he came within thirty or forty yards. At his fourth shot, the enemy pilot fell forward in his seat, and his machine fell heavily to earth. He lighted behind the German lines, much to the victor's disgust, for it was counted a higher achievement to bring your foe to earth in your own territory. But Rockwell was able to pursue his victim far enough to see the wreck burst into flames. Though often wounded, Rockwell scorned danger. He would go into action so bandaged that he seemed fitter to go to an hospital. He was always on the attack, shoved his gun into the enemy's face, as his fellows in the escadrille expressed it. So in September 1916, he went out after a big German machine. He saw flying in French territory. He had but little difficulty in climbing above it, and then dashed down in his usual impetuous manner his machine-gun blazing as he came on, but the German was of heavier metal mounting two machine-guns. Just as to onlookers it seemed that the two machines would crash together, the wings of one side of Rockwell's plane suddenly collapsed and he fell like a stone between the lines. The Germans turned their guns on the pile of wreckage where he lay, but French gunners ran out and brought his body in. His breast was all blown to pieces with an explosive bullet. Criminal, of course, barbarous and uncivilized, but an everyday practice of the Germans. Rockwell was given an impressive funeral. All the British pilots and five hundred of their men marched, and the bier was followed by a battalion of French troops. Over and around the little French graveyard, aviators flew, dropping flowers. In later days, less ceremony attended the last scene of an American aviator's career. Another American aviator, also a Harvard man, who met death in the air was Victor Chapman of New York, a youth of unusual charm, high ideals, and indomitable courage. At the very outbreak of the war, he enlisted in the French Foreign Legion, a rough entourage for a college-bred man. Into the Foreign Legion drifted everything that was doubtful, and many that were criminal. No questions were asked of those who sought its hospitable ranks, and readers of Ouida's novel, Under Two Flags, will recall that it enveloped in its convenient obscurity British lordlings and the lowest of Catalonian thieves. But in time of actual war, its personnel was less mixed, and Chapman's letters showed him serving there contentedly as pointer of a maltreilleuse, but not for long. Most of the spirited young Americans who entered the French army aspired to serve in the aviation corps, and Chapman soon was transferred to that field. There he developed into a most daring flyer. On one occasion, with a bad scalp wound, after a brush with four German machines, he made his landing with his machine so badly wrecked that he had to hold together the broken ends of a severed control with one hand while he steered with the other. Instead of laying up for the day, he had his mechanician repair his machine, while a surgeon repaired him, then, patched up together, man and machine, took the air again in search for the Bosch. In June 1916, though still suffering from a wound in the head, he started in his machine to carry some oranges to a comrade lying desperately wounded in a hospital some miles away. On the way, he saw in the distance, behind the German lines, two French airmen set upon by an overwhelming force of Germans. Instantly he was off to the assistance of his friends, plunging into so unequal a fight that even his coming left the other Americans outnumbered. But he had scarce a chance to strike a blow. Some chance shot from a German gun put him out of action.
All that the other two Americans, Lufbery and Prince, knew was that they saw a French machine come flying to their aid and suddenly tip and fall away to earth. Until nightfall came and Chapman failed to return, none was sure that he was the victim. The part played by young Americans as volunteers for France before the United States entered upon the war was gallant and stimulating to national pride. It showed to the world and to our own countrymen who needed the lesson as much as any that we had among our youth scores who, moved by high ideals, stood ready to risk their lives for a sentiment, stood ready to brave the myriad discomforts of the trenches, the bursting shrapnel, the mutilating liquid fire, the torturing gas, that German autocracy should be balked of its purpose of dominating the world. And the service of these boys aided far more than they knew. The fact that our countrymen in numbers were flying for France kept ever before the American people the vision of that war in the air of which poets and philosophers had dreamed for ages. It brought home to our people the importance of aviation before our statesmen could begin to see it. It set our boys to reading of aircraft, building model planes, haunting the few aviation fields which at the time our country possessed, and it finally so filled the consciousness of our people with conviction of the supreme importance of aviation as an arm of the National Armed Service that long before the declaration of war the government was embarrassed by flood of volunteers seeking to be enrolled in the flying forces of the nation. End of Incidents of the War in the Air, Part 2 Recording by William Tomko